welcome to this episode of Her Voice Echoes. I'm your host, Kim Kapuska. Today we'll be hearing the story of Irish immigrants to North America, both the U.S. and Canada. We'll be hearing their stories both through letters and also through stories that were taken down when these women were in their later years. In one case, the story of a woman's arrival in Canada, and the later story of a woman reflecting back on her life in the U.S., The stories we're about to hear are not all happy. I'll warn you ahead of time. Some of these letters are extremely painful and tough to listen to. The first one we'll hear is a story taken down in the late 1800s. It was told by Mary McLean Walsh to her daughter. It was taken down in Ottawa, Canada. The story starts in May of 1832 when the family arrives in Ottawa, Canada from Ireland. On the 10th of May, 1832, my parents, with their eight children, sailed from Ireland to America. And although the other passengers fared very well, and notwithstanding I was a perfectly healthy Irish girl of 16, during the whole voyage of one month I was ill. We were much relieved to be landed in Quebec, but imagine our feelings at finding ourselves in a plague-stricken city where men, women, and children, spitten by cholera, dropped in the streets to die in agony, where business was paralyzed and not prevailed but sorrow mingled with dread and gloom. People passed us, each holding between their teeth a piece of a stick or cane about the length of a hand, and as thick as the stem of a clay tobacco pipe, on the end of which was stuck a piece of smoking tar. We learned this was used as a preventative. My father, seeing my weakness, engaged rooms nearby, The following morning I was advised to dress and walk slowly to the wharf, which I did, and was passing a heap of coal there when suddenly blinded and speechless but but conscious, I fell against it. The captain of our ship, who was standing near, talking to another gentleman, ran forward and, raising my head, told his friend to bring from the ship as quickly as possible a tumberful of brandy with a teaspoon of red pepper stirred through it. I was now in a veritable house of torture where the most appalling shrieks, groans, prayers, and curses filled the air continually. As if in answer to this, day and night, from the sheds outside came the tap, tap, tap of the workmen's hammers as they drove the nails into the rough coffins, which could not be put together hastily enough for the many whose shrieks subsided into moans, which gradually died away into silence not to be broken, whose poor bodies were then carried to the dead house in the hospital yard, confined, piled on the dead cart, and hurried off to what was called the cholera burying ground, where, so great was the mortality at the time, corpses were buried five and six deep with layers of lime between, in one grave. All the medical men's efforts to save were futile, until I fell into their hands. And as I slowly but surely recovered, such interest was centered on my case that four doctors at a time would stand bending over me, noting anxiously each symptom of returning health. In spite of their watchfulness, however, I twice managed to disobey orders. On a long table in the ward in crocks, each with a little dipper beside it, stood the drinks allowed us. Brandy and water, lemon juice and water without sugar, and very thin gruel without salt. But none of these satisfied me, for my bed was near the window, through which could be seen a well, and this set me dreaming often with tear-filled eyes of my mother's well far away, over whose low brim some big old country roses drooped seeming to impart their fragrance to the limpid deliciousness beneath, and I craved incessantly for one drink of clear, cold water. So one day, when my mother, who regardless of all danger to herself, had braved the horrors of the hospital, 
to help nurse her four children, three sick of cholera and one of smallpox, which was also raging in 1832, had gone away for a much-needed rest. I coaxed the nurse to gratify my longing. Finally, my pleadings touched her so that she brought me a small cup of water, which I drank greedily. It had no bad effect whatever, and the doctors, in spite of all their watchfulness, detected nothing unusual. A little later, enlisting the sympathies of the nurse, who had helped in my former venture, in what I persuaded her was a good cause, she bound me to secrecy and smuggled in a cupful of warm broth, which I swallowed and in a few hours was once more on the verge of the grave. As mine was the case on which the doctor's hopes hung, this relapse caused them much distress, the head physician declaring angrily that someone had tampered with me. But ill as I was, all efforts to make me divulge were useless, and the nurse, a big jolly Irish woman, declared when we were alone that I was a little that I was a little brick, and she was proud of her countrywomen. My disobedience nearly cost me my life, but a good constitution triumphed, and six months from the time of entering the hospital I was sent to the recovery sheds adjoining where, sad to say, some who were cured of cholera contracted smallpox and returned to the hospital and died. While in the recovery sheds we were allowed daily the juice of six lemons and a handful of peppermints. My father brought me a fresh supply of both each morning, and at the end of a week was told he might take me away. As I walked for the last time in the hospital yard, I saw burning there cholera-tainted rich velvet and silk gowns, costly bonnets and shawls, children's clothing, the rags of the poor, gorgeous uniforms, boots with spurs attached, and all else which formed a pile. As I watched the flames creep upward, I realized that before me was indeed a shocking proof of the ravages of the plague, and breathing a prayer for the souls of the dead. Who had once worn those garments, I took my father's arm and set out, all sadness giving way to the joyful anticipation of a family reunion, not knowing that my own sister's and brother's clothes were in that burning pile I had left behind. Until I met my mother dressed in deep mourning, her pretty face sad and careworn, when she told me I was the only one of her four sick children who had survived. Well, that was a harrowing story to start with, but I think it's appropriate given some of the stories that we're about to hear. You know, although Mary and her family didn't come over during the famine years, their entry into the U.S. is truly horrific. And poor Mary having to listen to the coffins being built and then knowing that no one else had survived and being hungry, being thirsty. And maybe the only reason she did survive is because she broke the doctor's rules and, and drank water and had some broth. Kudos to the nurse who, who snuck behind the doctors and took care of that. And that poor mother losing three children and almost a fourth. I Truly, as a mother, I can't imagine. Our next story is a little more uplifting. It's a letter from Margaret McCarthy. Margaret's 23. The letter's dated 1850, but Margaret arrived in New York City in October of 1849. Dear father and mother, brothers and sisters, I write these few lines to you, hoping that these few lines may find you all in as good state of health as I am at present. Thank God. My dear father, I must only say that this is a good place and a good country, for if one place does not suit a man, he can go to another, and can very easily please himself. But there's one thing that's ruining this place, especially of frontier towns and cities where the flow of emigration is most. The emigrants has not money enough to take them to the interior of the country, 
which obliges them to remain here in York and the like places, for which reason causes the less demand for labor and also the great reduction in wages. For this reason, I would advise no one to come to America that would not have some money after landing here that would enable them to go west in case they would get no work to do here. But any man or woman without a family are fools that would not venture and come to this plentiful country where no man or woman ever hungered or ever will and where you will not be seen naked. But I can assure you that there are dangers upon dangers attending coming here. But my friends, nothing venture, nothing have. Fortune will favor the brave. Have courage and prepare yourself for the next time that worthy man, Mr. Boyan, is sending out the next lot. And come you all together courageously and bid adieu to that lovely place, the land of our birth. I'm now told its gulf of misery, oppression, degradation, and ruin of every description, which I'm sorry to hear of, so doleful a history to be told of our dear country. This, my dear father, induces me to remit to you in this letter twenty dollars. That is four pounds thinking it might be some acquisition to you until you might be clearing away from that place altogether. And the sooner the better, for believe me, I would not express how great would be my joy at our seeing you all here together, where you would never want or be at a loss for a good breakfast and dinner. Bring with you as much tools as you can, as it will cost you nothing to bring them. As for Mary, she need not mind much, as I will have for her a silk dress, a bonnet and veil according. And Ellen, I need not mention what I will have for her. I can fit her well. Well, I have only to tell my dear mother to bring all her bedclothes, and also to bring the kettle and an oven, and have handles to them, and do not forget the smoothing irons, and beware when you are on board to bring some good flour and engage with the Captain Cook, and he will do it better for you for very little. And also bring some whiskey, and give them to the cook, and some sailors that you may think would do you any good to give them a glass once in a time. And it may do no harm. So, no more at present for your ever dear and loving child, signed Margaret McCarthy. Margaret's story was interesting to me for several reasons. First was her recognizing that because people didn't have money to get to the interior of the country where there was more opportunity, they were congregating in the big cities on the East Coast, which really depressed wages and allowed landlords and others in those areas to really take advantage of the immigrants. So her recommendation that people who come over have some money is really powerful. Now at a time when people were starving and just getting out of the country and to North America was huge, asking people to come with resources you know, was highly unlikely, but nevertheless, it's a, a valid observation and a good recommendation. The other thing that I found interesting was her recommendations on what to bring over especially what to bring on the ship. It wasn't until I did this research that I learned that the passengers in steerage had to bring their own food on the ship. That uh, was very surprising to me. When we get to the story of the Irish cook later on, you'll hear about her ship being delayed by three weeks, which meant that, that food ran short. You can only imagine how people who struggled to save the money for passage. And then on top of that, had to bring their own food and really budget how much should I bring. And if we're caught at sea, the only food I'm going to have is the food I bring with me. Or if I'm lucky, someone might share with me. So Margaret, I found um, uplifting and um, also quite observant. 
Next up, we have an exchange of letters between James Christie and his second wife, Elizabeth Reed Christie. James was in Wisconsin at the time the letters were written, and Elizabeth was in, they believe, New York City. The letters were written in 1847. But before we read them, here's a little bit of background on James and Elizabeth. Uh, James was born in 1811 in Dundee, Scotland, and he was married before his marriage to Elizabeth, to another Elizabeth, who died soon after giving birth to a daughter. So James had one surviving child when he married Elizabeth Reed, um, whose name who um, went by Eliza. Eliza was um, born in 1818 in Ireland. James and Eliza met when James left Scotland after the death of his daughter when she was 18 months old. They married, had six children. They had two sons who died in infancy, ended up with three sons and one daughter, plus James's surviving son from his first marriage. So the, the family emigrated from Ireland and to the U.S. in 1846 when James joined his brothers who had been in the country already and had also worked in Cuba. This exchange of letters was written when James was building out their farm in Wisconsin and Elizabeth was staying in New York with the children. The letters are dated, as I said, 1847. The first is from James to Elizabeth. It's dated February 3rd, 1847. And here is the letter. My very dear Elizabeth, I feel the utmost gratitude to God that you and the children are well. We will begin to put up our house in 10 days. We've drawn every log for three and a half miles as our land contains no suitable trees. I build it in the most fertile part of the land so that we may have a good garden at the door. I've been cutting down plum trees and wild vines, but I've spared some so as you may see them. Providence seems to separate us that our love may be purified. I've always told you, my dear Elizabeth, that it was for the sake of our children that I would take upon me the toils of a settler's life, and how much easier it will be for me to die knowing that they will be independent. We will each of us have forty acres of good land, and my forty will still be there when I am gone, not as when you die in Ireland, leaving your children a legacy of debt and the same eternal round of slavery which has been your own lot. We left with three hundred and ten dollars, and all that's left is fifty. Out of that a cow and sow and pigs are to buy and a plow, shingles, and lumber for our house. We are hard up for cash, but I enclose one dollar for you. You would have more if it were to spare. And have, my dear Elizabeth, my blessing. God be about you and the children, for you are my heart, and they are the light of mine eyes. Signed, your husband until death, James Christie. And now we have a letter from Elizabeth Reed Christie, who's in Hartford, Connecticut at the time that she writes this letter. It's only a fragment of, of the letter. It's dated February 24th, 1847. My dear James, I received your kind and welcomed letter of the 3rd of February. There's nothing in this world gives me so much happiness, my dear husband, as a letter from you. Thank God little Sarah Jane is quite strong again, and Tom is a fine stout boy. None of his clothes fits him. He's grown so. Oh, dear James, you speak about us coming to you in April. God grant us that. I received your one dollar, which I am very thankful for. I bought some shirts for Tom and the makings of some slips for Sarah. But I long to see you, dear James. 
the days or years till we be once again together. Oh, that that day has arrived. I think I would cry for joy. Signed, your loving wife, Elizabeth Christie. I chose these letters between James and Elizabeth for a couple of reasons. First, they're a good example of people who did have the resources to get out of the cities on the East Coast and and go into the interior of the country where there was more opportunity. And also just the humanity of their letters. Sadly, Elizabeth ended up dying, giving birth to her seventh child. Next up, we're going to switch gears a little bit and go back to Ireland. We're going to hear three different letters from people in Ireland talking about the conditions there. Thus far, I haven't talked at all about what was driving Irish immigration to the U.S. and to Canada. While there were many who came because the U.S. and Canada were seen as lands of opportunity, from 1845 to 1852, there was a famine in Ireland caused by the potato blight. That caused massive suffering throughout Ireland, which was at the time ruled by the British. And for many reasons that I'm not going to get into right now, the British did not come to the aid of the Irish in the way that most people believe they could have. So the Irish suffered hugely, which we're going to hear about in the letters that we read in just a minute. But during those famine years, close to 750,000 Irish left Ireland to seek opportunities in the New World. And the letters I'm about to read are from folks who are in Ireland writing to their family members who are in North America, and they are pleading for help and hear their stories. The first letter we have is from Michael and Mary Rush. It's dated September 6, 1846. It's addressed to Mary Rush's parents in Quebec, Canada. Dear father and mother, Penn cannot dictate the poverty of this country at present. The potato crop is quite done away all over Ireland, and we are told prevailing all over Europe. There is nothing expected here, only an immediate famine. The laboring class getting only two stone of Indian meal for each day's labor, and only three days given out of each week to prolong the little money sent out by government to keep the people from going out to the fields, to prevent slaughtering the cattle, which they are threatening very hard they will do before they starve. I think you will have all this account by public print before this letter comes to hand. Now, my dear parents, pity our hard case and do not leave us on the number of the starving poor. And if it be your wish to keep us until we earn any labor you wish to put us to, we will feel happy in doing so. When we had not the good fortune of going there, the different times you sent us money. But alas, we had not the good fortune. Now, my dear father and mother, if you knew what danger we and our fellow countrymen are suffering, if you were ever so much distressed, you would take us out of this poverty isle. We can only say the scourge of God fell down in Ireland in taking away the potatoes, they being the only support of the people, not like countries that has a supply of wheat and other grain. So, dear father and mother, if you don't endeavor to take us out of it, it will be the first news you will hear by some friend of me and my little family to be lost by hunger, and there are thousands dread they will share the same fate. 
Do not think there is one word of untruth in this. You will see it in every letter and, of course, in the public prints. Those that have oats, they have some chance, for they say they will die before they part any of it to pay rent. So the landlord is in a bad way, too. Cicely Boyers and family are well. Michael Barrett is confined in his bed by rheumatism. The last market oatmeal went from one pound to one pound one shilling. As for potatoes, there was none at market. Butter, five pounds. Pork, two pounds, eight shillings. And everything in provision way expected to get higher. The Lord is merciful. He fed the 5,000 men with five loaves and two small fishes. Hugh Hart's mother is dead. He is in good health. So I conclude with my blessings to you both and remain your affectionate son and daughter, Michael and Mary Rush. The letter ends with a postscript. For God's sake, take us out of poverty and don't let us die with hunger. I think that letter speaks for itself. Um, Next up, we have a letter from Hannah Curtis to her brother, John Curtis, who was in Philadelphia. It's dated April 24th, 1847. And I'll let Hannah speak for herself. She has a very powerful voice. My dear brother, John, I had heard a letter come on this morning of this day from John Cullen to his mother and money in it for her. My uncle, William Dunn, wrote to me saying he had a letter from you. I think the latter end of February, saying you would let me have one from you in March. I was every day expecting it, but all in vain. My uncle also told me you got a letter from me before you wrote to him. I sent it in the latter end of November, and from what I said in it, I think you would have no right to forget me when it is in your power. I related to you the state of the country in that letter, therefore I need not go over it any more. Only the distress that was amongst the people at the time was nothing to what it is at present. I related to you the state of the country in that letter. Therefore, I need not go over it any more. Only the distress that was amongst the people at that time was nothing to what it is at present. The people are in a starving state. The poorhouse is crowded with people, and they are dying as fast as they can, from 10 to 20 a day out of it. There is some kind of a strange fever in it, and it is the opinion of the doctor it will spread over town and country when the weather grows warm. No person can be sure of their lives one moment. The times are so sudden you would scarcely see as many people with the funeral as as it would take it to the grave. In fact, I would not describe the awful state of Ireland at present. You all may think the people are not so bad on account of all the provisions that is coming into it, but there's no trade of any kind doing, nor no money in the country went is gone to America from. Everyone that can go to America is going this year, as there is no prospect of anything here but poverty and distress. The Reverend Father Healy is, after getting, I think, about Fifty letters and money in them all. They were sent to his care by people in America to their friends at home to take them out to them. The post office here is full of letters every day. Everyone without money, dear John. With regard to the rates of provision, they are as follows. Hannah goes on to describe the the cost of uh, bacon, butter, beef, mutton, flour, and oatmeal. I need not mention potatoes by any chance, as we have none for now. You see how hard it is to live here. My Aunt Betty Carolyn family, Aunt Smith and Aunt Hannah Humphreys, and all her family are gone. Only John that is in the army. We're all gone to America. They sailed for America the 19th of this month. Dear John, as I was so sure of your letter when my uncle wrote to me, as we thought we would go when my aunts were going, we sold all our furniture in order to have no delay, and what we got for them is not worth mentioning as everything is sold now for half nothing. 
All I kept was the bed and bedclothes that we would want to take with us. So now we have nothing but the bare walls of the house. I thought nothing would make you all forget me, and I the only person left alone, and from the promises my father made, one at the boat, that you all would join and send for me in a short time. You need not be saying you would do better at home, as you may not know what home is. I am sure as would do as well as others, and if you would only lend us what you could with the help of God, we would be able to pay you again, perhaps. Many times my father let money behind the back of a ditch to neighbors and got it again, and I am sure he nor you could not turn it to better use than sending for me. Now it was my Aunt Arthur's, sent Aunt Hannah and family. Everyone is getting money but me. I'm quite jealous and ashamed of you all. You are, as I think, behaving so bad as I can say nothing else to you. If you attempt to forget one on the present occasion, mind, I don't think you will have me to trouble you long. Don't attempt to leave me here to fall a victim to the miseries that awaits the country. I send my love with William to you all a thousand times, also to my aunt, Mrs. Dillon and family, Aunt Margaret and family, and I trust with the blessing of the Lord we will all meet and spend happy days together. As for William's trade, it is very bad. He's only two men working for him instead of ten or twelve. There is no clothes buying with anyone, I may say. And the gentleman that he works for does not think of clothes as there is so much poverty in their hearts. There is not room in the churchyards for to bury the dead as they are dying so fast. The coffins, I may say, are on the surface of the earth and has no more room for them. Dear John, John Londrine sends his love to you in this letter. In your next letter, send me all the particulars about the fashions and, and rates of the country as I never can get a satisfactory letter. I will be a good deal more impatient to get the answer of this than I ever was. James Farrell, the young man that worked for us, went at Christmas. We had a letter from him on the ninth of this month. He is in New York. I suppose you had a letter from him before this. He told William he would do well by going. He set a place in view that would answer him. So now, as I said before, don't forget me. I have a great deal more news to send you if I had more room, but I must leave it for some other time. And the letter... The copy I have wasn't signed. As I said, Hannah has a powerful voice. And I'll, I'll start by saying that a year after this letter was written, she and her husband, William, departed for the U.S. So all ended well. But I think that Hannah's attitude was probably not uncommon. Recently, I was reading a story in the New York Times about Syrian immigrants to Canada and some of the struggles that they were having communicating with their families back home. The families back home were texting them and emailing them, calling them on their cell phones and telling them how horrible the situation is in Syria. At the time that um, Hannah was writing, there were no cell phones, there were letters. And you know, this was not Hannah's first angry letter. There are records of previous letters that she'd written. And I imagine this was probably not her last. So the pressure that Hannah was putting on her family seems to be a, a common theme that immigrants experience. Their families back home are desperate and they need help. And as we read about immigration to the U.S., it wasn't just the, the Irish, where one person would get to the country, build up a little bit of money, and then send that money to bring the rest of the family over. And in the interim, send cash so that the family situation is improved while they're still there. So the pressure that Hannah was putting on her family doesn't appear to be that uncommon. It was a very painful letter to read. Next up, we have a letter that's a little more gentle. It's 
also from Ireland back to the U.S. It's from a Mrs. Nolan to her son, Pat, Patrick. It's dated October 8, 1850. And she's writing to her son in what appears to be Providence, Rhode Island. Dear Pat, I received your letter with the 30 shillings in our greatest of want. I hope God will reward you for it. The day it come, I was without one bite to eat. Dickie's eight weeks in bed without a stitch on him, and my petticoat and coats all pawned. Dear Pat, we've no place to lay our heads. We were lodging under James Street Arch, but were put out of it. Then a few nights up in the sconce, still without a bite. We'd be dead long ago only for two neighbors that often gives me a bite, for God's sake. Little ever I thought it'd come my turn to beg. No more would I beg only for your father's death. But thanks, bit of God, whatever me or his child here is suffering. Your father died and was buried the way he lived, respectable and decent. Dear Pat, I've not a penny. The blankets, bed, and boots of my feet was pawned. You can't know how we're suffering unless you were in starvation and want, without friend or fellow to give you a shilling. Then you'd know. But on my two bended knees, Pat, fresh and fasting, I pray to God that you, nor none of yours, may ever know, nor ever suffer what we are suffering now. Uncle John said he'd keep little John and Joseph until I write from America for them. I wrote to James, and he promised to take them out last June and never wrote a sense. Send word if he's in Providence with you. If he be in Providence, tell him that poor little Dickie longs both night and morning to see you and James. The poor child says he'd not be hungry if he was near you. Oh, Pat, hurry and take us out of this. It's the poorest prospect of a winter that I ever had, without house or home fire, friend nor fellow nor bite of food to eat. That's my prospects. For the love of God, Pat. Bring me and little Dickie out of this as quick as you can. I pray that God's Holy Spirit be with you all. You promised to take us out, your loving mother until death. While Mrs. Nolan's letter to her son is more gentle, it's brutal in its directness and its honesty, that all of her possessions are pawned. She has nowhere to live. She and her younger son are starving. They feel abandoned, desperate. Again, I just can't imagine the hopelessness that um, this mother would be feeling and writing letters to family members who are making promises through the mail that they don't follow up on is it's absolutely brutal and I don't think there's anything else to say about that one. Now we are really going to shift gears and talk a little bit on a later note. This is a, a letter that was from a little bit later It's from a young woman named Celia Grimes. She's in Flushing, New York, and she's writing to her family in Ireland. The letter is dated June 12th, 1869. Dear brother and sister, I'm sure you will laugh when I tell you that I had three places in one week. I arrived on Wednesday in New York, and on the next day I went to serve the tables in a great hotel, and there I worked all day washing dishes. You may say that it was a heavy job. When 10 o'clock came, I was told that I might go to bed. I was not lonely, for there was plenty of company there. They told me that they were Irish. They was funny Irish. Thirty of them slept in one room. From ten to twelve they came into the room, and there they coursed like devils. Some of them made me laugh about the greenhorn. But hold on, you won't have the greenhorn long, I said to myself. God spares me till morning, and there I watched till four o'clock, and then I told them my time was up. 
but how to find my way out of the house I did not know. After I went about for a while, I found one of the men of the house, and he brought me safe out and showed me the way to Marianne Corey, and that day advertised, and the next day at seven o'clock a lady came after me and engaged me at ten dollars a month to go to the country. She says that she is not a very rich lady, but she is very kindly. She takes more care of my health than myself. And the letter ends there, and it's not signed. Miss Celia Grimes has quite the sense of humor about her own situation arriving in New York. You know, she found work quickly, but it sounds like she ended up in a wild house full of funny Irish people. And not unlike today, you know, a lot of people stuffed into one room, 30 people in a room. But I love, I don't know if you caught what she actually said. It sounds like she said they, they coursed like devils. She's saying they curse like devils. So this was a rough crowd she was hanging out with, but God spared her and she managed to get out of there and find another job and a situation where she felt safe. Next up, we have a letter from a young woman named Kathy Green. She lives in Brooklyn. She's writing to her mother in Ireland. And this is even 20 years later than the last letter. It's dated August 1st, 1884. Kathy is a little sad. Missing Ireland, I think like a lot of immigrants, she came over for economic opportunity and misses her homeland. My dear Mama, what on earth is the matter with you all that none of you would think of writing to me? The fact is I'm heartsick, fretting. I cannot sleep the night, and if I chance to sleep, I wake with the most frightful dreams. To think it's now going and gone into the third month since you wrote me, I feel as if I'm dead to the world. I've left the place I was employed. They failed in business. I was out of place all summer, and the devil knows how long. This is a world of troubles. I would battle with the world and would never feel dissatisfied if I could hear from you. And no, candidly, things are going on, but what to think of how you are forgetting me. I know if I don't hear from you prior to the arrival of this letter at Ballyarkin, I will be almost dead. I sometimes think you would come here and that health would fail and, like almost all the Irish, drop off one by one. There's no place like home, if one could at all live there. But if not, don't hesitate coming here. I trust you are well, and that my frightful dreams won't be realized. Signed, Kathy. That was the last of our letters. Next, we have the story of an Irish cook. It's a story that was included in an anthology that was published in 1906 by a gentleman named Hamilton Holt. The book was called The Life Stories of Undistinguished Americans as Told by Themselves. This is a story that was taken down, as I said, in 1906. But um, in the story, the Irish cook, her name is Anne. She doesn't say that till the very end, but her name is really Anne. In the story, Anne reflects on immigrating to the U.S. and her life in the, U- in the country after coming here. So I think it's a good way to end this episode. It pulls together... It pulls together the life of an immigrant over 50 or more years. So I hope you enjoy this, and um, here's Anne's story. I don't know why anybody wants to hear my history. Nothing ever happened to me worth the telling except when my mother died. Now she was an extraordinary person. The neighbors all respected her, and the minister, go ask Mrs. McNabb, he'd say to the women in the neighborhood when they were wanting advice. But about me? I was born nigh to Lima Vaddy. It's a pretty town close to Londonbury. We lived in a peat cabin, but it had a good thatched roof. Mother put on that roof. It isn't a woman's work, but she was able for it. There were seven children of us. John and Matthew, they went to Australia. 
Mother was laying by for five years to get their passage money. They went into the bush. We heard twice from them, and then no more. Not another word, and that is forty years gone now, on account of them not reading and writing. Learning isn't cheap in them old countries as it is here, you see. I suppose they're dead now. John would be ninety years now, and in heaven. They were honest men. My mother sent Joseph to Londonbury to learn the weaver's trade. My father, he never was a steady worker. He took to the drink early in life. My mother and me and Tilly, we worked in the field for Squire Varney. Yes, plowing and seeding and digging. Any farm work he'd give us. We did men's work, but we didn't get men's pay. No, of course not. In winter, we did lace work and still can embroider beautifully. It was pleasanter not digging after my hands was fit for it. But it took me two weeks every year to clean and soften my hands for the needle. Pay was very small in the twins. That was Maria and Philip. They were too young to work at all. What did we eat? Well, just potatoes. On Sundays, once a month, we'd have a little bit of flitch. When the potatoes rotted, that was the hard times. Oh, yes, I mind the famine years. Ah, the cornmeal that the Americans sent. Folks said they'd rather starve nor eat it. We didn't know how to cook it. Here I ate corn dodgers and fried mush fast enough. Maria, she was one of the twins. She died the famine year of the typhus. Well, she sickened of the herbs and roots we eat. We had no potatoes. Mother said when Maria died, there's a curse on old green Ireland. We'll get out of it. So we worked and saved for four years. And then Squire Varney helped us a bit. Then Squire Varney helped a bit. And we sent Tilly to America. She had always more head than me. She came to Philadelphia and got a place for general housework at Mrs. Bent's. Tilly got but two dollars a week being a greenhorn, but she learned hand over hand, and Mrs. Bent kept no other help and laid out to teach her. She learned to cook and bake and to wash and do up shirts, all American fashion. Then Tilly asked three dollars a week. Mother always said, don't ask a penny more than you're worth, but know your own valley and ask that. She had no expenses and laid by money enough to bring me out before the year was gone. I sailed from Londonbury. The ship was a sailing vessel, the Mary Jane. The passage was $12. You brought your own eating, your tea and meal, and most had flitch. There were two big stoves that we cooked on. The steerage was a dirty place, and we were eight weeks on the voyage. Over time, three weeks. The food ran scarce. I tell you, but the captain gave some to us, and them that had plenty was kind to others. I've heard bad stories of things that went on in the steerage in them old times. Smallpox and fevers and starvation and worse but I saw nothing of them in my ship. Folks were decent. The captain was kind. When I got here, Mrs. Bent let Tilly keep me for two months to teach me, me being such a greenhorn. Of course I worked for her. Mr. Bent was foreman then in Spangler's big mills. After two months, I got a place. They were nice appearing enough, but the second day I found out they were Jews. I never had seen a Jew before, so I packed my bag and said to the lady, I beg your pardon, ma'am, but I can't eat the bread of them as crucified the Savior. But she said he was a Jew. So at that I put out. I couldn't hear such talk. Then I got a place for general housework with Mrs. Carr. I got two dollars till I learned to cook good, and then three dollars, and then four. I was in that house as cook and nurse for twenty-two years. Tilly lived with the Bents till she died, eighteen years. Mr. Bent came to be partner in the mills and got rich, and they moved into a big house in Germantown and kept a lot of help, and Tilly was housekeeper. How did we keep our places so long? Well, I think me and Tilly was clean in our work, and we was decent, and of course we was honest. Nobody living can say one of the McNabs ever wronged him of a cent. Mrs. Carr's interests was my interests. 
I took better care of her things than she did herself, and I loved the children as if they were my own. She used to tell me my sin was I was stingy. I don't know. The McNabs was no wasteful folk. I wore one dress nine year, and it looked decent then. Me and Tilly saved till we brought Joseph and Phil over, and they went into Mr. Bent's mills as weaver and schoolboy, and then they saved, and we all brought my mother and father. We rented a little house in Kensington for them. There was a parlor in it, and a kitchen, and two bedrooms, and bathroom, and marble doorstep, and a bell. That was in 66, and we paid $9 a month rent. You'd pay double that now. It took all our savings to furnish it, but Mrs. Bent and Mrs. Carr gave us lots of things to go in. To think of my mother having a parlor and marble steps and a bell. They came on the old steamer Indiana and got here at night, and we had supper for them and the house all lighted up. Well, you ought to have seen my mother's old face. I'll never forget that night, if I live to be a hundred. After that, mother took in boarders and Joseph and Phil was there. We all put every cent we earned into building associations. So Tilly owned a house when she died, and I own this one now. Our ladies told us how to put the money so as to breed more, and we never spent a cent we could save. Joseph pushed on and got his big wages and started a flower store, and Phil went to night school and got a place as clerk. He married a teacher in the Kensington Public School. She was a showy miss, silk dress and feathers in her hat. Father died soon after he come. The drink here wasn't as wholesome for him as it was in Ireland. Poor father. He was a good-hearted man, but it wasn't worth a penny when he died. Mother lived to be 80. She was respected by all Kensington. The night she died, she said, I have much to praise God for. I haven't a child that is dependent on the day's work for the day's food. Every one of them owns a roof to cover him. Joseph did well in his flower store. He has a big one on Market Street now and lives in a pretty house out in West Philadelphia. He's one of the wardens in the church out there, and the girls give teas and goes to reading clubs. But Phil is the one to go ahead. His daughter, Anne, she was named for me. She calls herself Antoinette and is engaged to a young lawyer in New York. He gave her a diamond engagement ring the other day, and his son, young Phil, is in politics and a member of the councils. He makes money hand over hand. He has an automobile and a fur coat, and you see his name and you see his name at big dinners and him making speeches. No saving of pennies or building associations for Phil. It's Phil that coaxed me to give up work at Mrs. Carr's and to open my house for boarders here in Kensington. His wife didn't like to hear it said that I was working in somebody's kitchen. Done well with the boarders. I know just how to feed them so as to lay by a little sum every year. I heard that young Phil told some of his friends that he had a queer old aunt up in Kensington who played poor, but had a great store of money hoarded away. He shouldn't have told a story like that, but young folks will be young. I like the boy. He's certainly bringing the family into notice in the world. Last Sunday's paper had his picture and one of the young lady he's going to marry in New York. It called him the young millionaire McNabb, but I judge he's not that. He wanted to borrow the money I've laid in the old bank at Walnut and 7th the other day and said that he'd double it in a week. No such work as that for me. But the boy certainly is a credit to the family. And that's Anne's story, which I think is a story that in many ways is representative of many Irish families, Irish people. She came over with the help of her sister, and then she helped two other family members to come over, and eventually all of them helped their parents come over. If you listen to our other podcasts, we have two others where the mothers were really driving forces in the family and set examples for their daughters. And Anne is another example of that. Because her father drank, her mother had to take responsibility for her family, even thatching the roof. Anne is so very proud 
of being able to take care of her mother in her old age. I really liked hearing about the rest of the family, including the millionaire McNabb. It shows how they really became part of their community, their nation, and and were no longer outsiders at the time that Anne was telling this story. And with that, I think we're going to end this one. There were a lot of tough stories in here, but I think Anne's is a good one to end it on to see that even though people had a tough time, it shows that those who survived the ordeal of the famine, the ordeal of coming over, the ordeal of the first year or two in the country, those that survived often thrived. Thank you for your patience. This episode was a little bit longer than usual, but I thought the topic deserved a little more attention. Thank you.